And we're live. Hello and welcome back to another, I wonder how to pronounce the name of this podcast backwards, episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Because we like to watch. My name is Tim Costa. And those crickets you hear are the sounds of Walter Vinci and Hermano da Silva driving an old Volvo around somewhere in the outback. But joining me tonight are two wonderful guests. First up, the man who likes to live with lonely women and their dozens of dogs. Uh, from across the pond, Neil Ramji. Welcome back to the show, Neil. I wish I had a dog. Um, yeah, um, thank you very much for having me on, Tim. It's uh, lovely to be back before uh, time is uh, called at the bar, at the first time watchers bar. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, anything uh, film-related of note uh, been going on in your area? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, I still work as part of the British Film Institute, helping... Uh, you know, community groups, uh, festivals, and all sorts of people uh, gain access to funds and uh, sort of keep keep culture alive and bring back people into a physical space. Because over the last two years, we know it's been incredibly uh, difficult to go and see um, films in in their natural habitats. And um, we are trying to give that confidence back to people to to, to visit their local theatre, cinema, um, because they've two have had a very difficult two years uh, with finances etc so um so yeah that's what i'm doing currently doing a little bit of freelance on the side as well and of course uh, being in your wonderful company tim mm, excellent excellent uh, you are making film culture great again awesome good job neil um and secondly a weird guy who sets off fireworks for the amusement of school children uh, from filmerliterates.com joe campbell welcome back to the show joe Glad to be back here, Tim. I, I can't remember the last time I was on this show, but I uh, forgot to bring fireworks this time. Mm. Well, I'm sure you'll be able to make it up uh, in some form or fashion. Uh, what's what's uh, been going on at Film Illiterates? Uh, so we did a we did a video on a video review of Robert Rodriguez's Desperado, uh, which you can find on YouTube.com/slash/FilmIllerates. And coming up in the next few weeks, we should have a video on Samuel Fuller's The Naked Kiss. So uh, lots of fun fun goodies coming up. Awesome, awesome. Well, good to have both of you on. Uh, and if you'd like to send feedback, you can always email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Uh, in this episode, we will be discussing the latest Justin Krizel film, Nitrum. But before we get into that, it is time for A or Nay. Uh, this is the part of the show where we discuss what we have seen recently on our own. Joe. <clears throat> so I've been watching a lot of uh, older movies, 1970s, 1950s. Uh, most recently, I watched Samuel Fuller's Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street. <laughs> I'm a pretty big Sam Fuller fan. Uh, I love his, you know, the, the Naked Kiss, Shot Corridor, way, way up there for me. Uh, this one was one that he shot in Germany, and it was meant to be an episode of a German television show, I think like a police show. And Sam Fuller basically hijacked the show and turned it into his own little pulp movie. He replaced the main character of the show, uh, this, this this German actor, with his American character that he brought in and turned it into this, this two-hour kind of uh, grimy, uh, sleazy kind of pulp novel tale that private detective hunting down the the person who killed his partner. And along the way, he teams up with a failed actress, and they blackmail uh, politicians by drugging the politicians and posing them in compromising positions with the actress. Wow. So it's 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 a very kind of, you know, again, 1970s kind of pulp kind of tale. I feel like this would read like Gangbusters as a book, 
which Fuller did end up turning it into a book later on. Uh, the movie itself, just incredibly disengaging for mm. me. It It's shot like a TV movie, but... Uh, the, you know, the camera angles, the camera angles are just very static. Uh, they do zoom in a little bit, but the, you know, the, the sound is incredibly canned. So the, the movie itself for me didn't really work, but I, I'd be really interested to read the book of this, the same story. Hmm. Uh, another one I watched was The Girl Can't Help It, 1956, got the new Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Uh, director Frank Tashlin made this one. A down-and-out gangster hires an alcoholic press agent to make his blonde bombshell girlfriend a recording star in six weeks. But what is he going to do when he finds out that she has no talent? And what is going to happen when the two fall in love? The stars Jane Mansfield and Tom Ewell. Uh, lots of fun. It's, it's basically a, a, a chance for Frank Tashlin to make um, a rock and roll comedy. There's lots of, of uh, rock and roll stars from the time are in this. Little Richard does the main theme of the song of, of the movie, and it's just it, it it plays out very straightforward. You know, not not a whole lot of depth to the story, but it's a big big colorful musical fun time. So I can highly recommend the the girl can't help it. Nice. And then finally, I watched uh, a new movie in theaters, Michael Bay's Ambulance. Hell yeah! I've I've got to see. So, so so Tim, have you seen this? I have seen this. I just saw this uh, yesterday, and I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I am. So Michael Bay, I, I, Michael Bay is very hit and miss for me. I don't always have a ton of fun with a lot of his movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's I, I really like Bad Boys too. It's just this kind of self-indulgent, good time movie. A lot of his Transformers movies don't work for me. I gotta say, I, I had a hell of a time with Ambulance. Absolutely fucking loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also I had the the opportunity when I went to go see it. Unfortunately, there was nobody else in the theater. <laughs> But that also meant that the that, that that whole third act, I was literally on my feet cheering at the screen <laughs> with all the craziness going on. Just an indulgent over the top. It, it reminded me kind of of speed, the way it, it propels itself forward with every new uh, set piece. And and he, he turns these, these ludicrous little actions into big set pieces. So yeah, hell, hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is uh, a lot of fun. I also found it pretty interesting in which he essentially abandons the notion of having a first act where yes. where literally like the first 15 minutes is dedicated to these three characters and the rest of the film is the second and third act. Uh, it, like I, I was kind of taken aback at how quickly things unfolded. I, I was I was like this guy is really accepting of the of his uh, friend, you know, he walks into Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, shop or whatever, and and I'm like, what? what how did we get here so quickly? And why is he so accepting of what's going on? <laughs> um, but I guess he just leaves the rest of the film to establish their background and their history and their friendship and stuff like that. Um, the drone footage here, the drone footage, so phenomenal. It, yeah, I think a lot of it has been maybe a little overblown in terms of how much there is because I think I expected more considering how much I had heard of it. Um, but I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Like this, I can see people looking back on this film and seeing how influential it might be in terms of using <laughs> drone footage and integrating it within uh, action scenes. And I, I couldn't help but think of other movies, other types of action movies. Like, give me a Gareth Evans, eco wise action movie with drone footage as well. Uh, give, give me, you know, any any other um, 
you know, f- fight scene with drone footage. Give me more chase scenes with drone footage. I there was one scene in particular where I cackled with glee, where the uh, uh, a police car goes up a ramp and crashes into something, and as that's happening, the drone somehow goes under the police car, as uh, in this like abandoned parking lot, and and. This was, you know, as the drone was also going through these pillars in this empty concrete building. And and I, I was just like, this is amazing. I, I want to see more of this. Uh, but, you know, I think there is a level of restraint that, that Michael Bay shows here in how much he utilizes those, as well as uh, Isaac Gonzalez. Now... It, look, uh, what's what's his name? Michael Bay is a, has perpetually been a fifteen year old at heart while making movies. He has never shied at leering at his women, Megan Fox and whoever else. Uh, he does not leer on her. He he gives her agency. He gives her character and and whatever level of depth you find in this type of movie. And never lingers on her, uses her as a sexual object, which is kind of amazing to me. This movie is predictable. It's fun. It's still uh, pulse pounding. I, I had a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's a good movie. Yeah, 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 I agree. I, I, I noticed that too, actually. That might be one reason why I enjoyed it more than uh, some of his Transformers movies, because I've never been a big fan of a lot of the juvenile stuff and the humor in a lot of those movies. Uh, this one he does he, he goes more for the propulsive action and he does hold back on the, the more more leering stuff like you said. Uh, yeah, I I agree. Um, so that's a yay for ambulance. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's all I got for today. Uh, awesome, awesome. Uh, so another movie that I actually caught up with uh, earlier uh, this afternoon uh, was The Northman. And Neil, I'm pretty sure that you've seen this one. I certainly have, Tim. And uh, I look. I'm. Uh, I've been a pretty big fan of uh, Robert Eggers's uh, previous films, uh, The Witch and um, uh, The Lighthouse. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I found this movie to be, interestingly enough, his most plot-driven and straightforward narrative film uh, so mm-hmm. far. Uh, I'm still kind of processing it, considering I, I recently just stepped out of the theater. And uh, I think I'm just taken aback at how relatively straightforward it was. And I think I was kind of expecting and maybe would have even appreciated a little bit more diversion into uh, non-linear storytelling and a little making things a little bit more symbolic. He inserts symbolism here and, and interesting imagery and, and, and whatnot. But I think, uh, I think, you know, putting a stamp on, on, on this movie, the way he did his previous two would have suited a bit more. Yeah, I still liked it. I still appreciate it, and it's a beautiful looking film. What did you think, Neil? Um, I, I largely agree with what you you said. I mean, obviously, this is his first proper commercial commercial film uh, for a studio, and there'll always be concessions when you move out of the uh, auteur space, I guess, into the more commercial world. And um, yeah, it is quite a linear story. Um, but then again, so are a lot of, you know, typical um, Norse, um, Scandinavian, you know, folklore stories. Um, I, I found it quite quite basic in places. Uh, as you said, the storytelling could have been a little bit more defined. Uh, there could have been sub, more subplots going on. Um, but then its simplicity also then reminded me of the fact that the, the people that are, might be watching this because Nicole Kidman's in it and um, Alexander Skarsgård um, 
are probably not attuned to something like the witch or the lighthouse sure for example um so so yeah I, I, but it's, it's it's a wonderful looking film. There there are moments where Eggers is able to to kind of stamp his little uh, tropes in the film. You know, he has an, uh, he has a fixation for um, bodily functions um, throughout <laughs> his films, and and these feature once again in in this, which I thought was quite a, quite a little a nice little nod. Um, but I hope that uh, perhaps his next project does go a little bit back maybe a step back towards something that he was able to achieve in in the lighthouse for example so i i, I think this is just a concession and it's so he can then you know one for me and one for the studio job so i think that's that's where they, i stand on uh, the northman sadly not enough penis uh, actually i don't think really any penis uh, there there's a naked a Viking fight scene on a volcano, and um, sadly, it was uh, it was lacking and 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 hiding a lot more than than I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, there was um, the uh, there was vagina. So there, 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 there's the uh, the the male gaze once again. Um, but um, did you um, the, the, that whole end uh, that that whole sequence on the on the volcano etc. Um, really reminded me of Star Wars Episode Three. Ah yes yes, I, I, and I think it was deliberate. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. It, it felt like a odd homage to to, mm. to such a blockbuster film. It, it was really interesting. Yeah, I definitely think that was deliberate. I mean, it couldn't have been anything else because it was just almost shot for shot, blow for blow. Um, so yeah, there was that, and um, he he does he does love Peter Jackson. So there is um, a, a sequence where um, they are forging the ring, yep. and that's literally almost you know with the blurry vision and and the intercuts, um, exactly the same when the uh, the orcs are forging. Um, the armor in in the first film right. so there, there's a lot of peter jackson sort of homage in this and once again i just think it's all deliberate i don't think they're d direct lifts i think it's definitely you know a little tip of the hat yeah i I would understand the nods to lord of the rings especially considering where it's set you know visually similar to to parts of new zealand uh but it's just it's such a it's such a odd thing to to reference Star Wars, then in this in this Viking uh, epic, it, well, you know, I, I don't think he's really a guy that plays by the the rules. So, you know, he seems quite diverse in what you know. It's like, um, but Paul Thomas Anderson has weird taste in films as well. Well, then, yeah, I mean, I remember the lighthouse and how that was filmed, and and it just, you know, the the levels that he goes to show appreciation for old school filmmaking. So to to you know have these nods to such more modern films I, I don't know how to process it i don't know how to take it i just didn't think he was interested in that kind of thing maybe we're reading too much into it maybe possibly. it's nothing at all and it's just a pure coincidence but i doubt it i, I mean it, it's possible that we're talking out of our asses neil never <laughs> uh still i like the northman it's uh, of the relatively few movies i've seen this year it's still uh it's gonna rank uh, pretty high as of now so that's uh, a yay for the northman what else have you seen neil oh we're on to me okay um well i'll, I'll uh, i always feel it's a, a missed opportunity that if i go for films that are crap and talk about them it's just a waste of time so all of these are going to be 
Oh boy. Uh, great, isn't it? Um, I'm going to do three of them. Um, <laughs> so let's start off uh, from uh, the oldest film that I've seen recently. For the first time, um, was High and Low by Akira Kurosawa from 63. Um, it's one of the, obviously everyone watches this, the, the samurai films, uh, but obviously uh, Kurosawa did a, an awful lot of sort of domestic drama as well. And this is one of them. It's sort of along the sort of Hitchcocky sort of tension vibes. And it's basically about a executive of a shoe company and uh, believes his son's been kidnapped, but it turns out to be the son of his chauffeur instead. And so they try and extort some cash from him. And then it, there's some working with the police and wiretapping and all sorts. And it's quite an interesting little story as it kinks along. Um, and it, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's an anti-capitalist message underneath it all. Uh, but it was really, really great. And um, that I, I gave that a quite a high yay. Um, so that was the first one. Um, and then I kind of watched some recent films that have sort of passed. I think everyone's had that moment where um, films have passed them by uh, during the pandemic. You know, things have got lost in releases. Some things have gone straight to streaming. And even the most ardent film fan has found it difficult to keep tabs on what, what's come out and what hasn't come out. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the films that was um, screened at Cannes in um it's screened at Cannes 2020, I believe. And it's uh, the, uh, well, almost latest film from Quentin Dupieux, um, also known as Mr. Wazo. Um, and obviously, uh, Quentin Dupieux uh, was Oscar nominated, I believe. Was he for Deer Skin? Um, oh, I no, might be making no. that up. I, I think you're making that up, Neil. Yeah. Okay. I'd like, I would have liked to yes. have been nominated. But anyway, he makes very ultra films, weird films. Mandibles is about two losers who are on uh, sort of a, a mission to to get 500 euros for delivering a suitcase and um when they nick the car that they're going to use to do this deal um they stop in the middle of the desert open the trunk and there's a giant fly in the trunk um humongous fly in fact um and they sort of tape it up with parcel tape and then decide they're going to domesticate it and then make <laughs> more money out of it um so one of those sort of films uh, of d domestication of a fly um and um it's quite it's, you know it's one of those films that's only at 77 minutes long so it's really kind of packs a lot into that short running time and i do admire that sort of brevity of storytelling unlike this uh, review of it but um yeah so um mandibles is a Yay! wow uh <laughs> <laughs> told you I'd play it three more times. Um, and the, a film that's not quite out in the world yet, but I have uh, had the privilege of seeing it, um, is The Innocence from Eskil Vogt. It's a Norwegian film uh, from 2021. And uh, when I saw it, um, I kind of said to myself, oh, this is a, almost a bit like The Eternals, but like an art house Eternals. That's what it felt like to me. It's about four kids who live on a high-rise uh, uh, estate and um they're in having the summer holidays and whatnot and they all go to play at the bottom of this high rise um almost like projects sort of living in norway and um they kind of uh, have something strange starts happening and they, they they work out they have they have powers of sorts 
Um, and it, uh, one of the girls is, um, I would say, uh, locked in. She has locked in syndrome and she has the most power. Um, and it, it gets quite interesting. So it's not as base as I'm describing it, but the innocence was just yeah, real slow burn, interesting take on the superhero genre in a way using children with the most brilliant acting I've seen in a very, very long time. Um, just absolutely knock out of the park. Um, and I think the morality of the thing uh, is the innocence is that uh, children are inherently evil. Um, and I, that was I, my takeaway from that. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, The Innocence uh, by Eskil Vogue is a... I think about the little things that make life great. I wouldn't change a thing about it. This is the best feeling. This innocence is brilliant. I hope that. Hello everyone, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday... You can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, JD. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father after all. <laughs> yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not kidding? how this works, sir. Hey, no, you, you, no, no, you no. go cry at Midnight Special again, oh, okay? That's okay. what you're I good will. for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Every imaginable subject. One man broke new ground with seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper fireballs? Think again. Don't you let 
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Okay, let's talk about Nitram. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at a fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric. And then I'd try and find it. It was about five. He loved it. I loved it. We used to play a lot of games. It sounds beautiful. But then this one day, I went to find him, and he wasn't there. He lived everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Nowhere. I just couldn't find him. Ran into all the shops, strangers were stopping to help me. I looked for him for over an hour. Tears streaming down my face. I was hysterical. <laughs> well, you know, the... I mean, that's the worst thing, isn't it? A mother losing a child. <sighs> what did you do? I gave up and went back to the car. I was going to drive to the police station. But then... I heard someone laughing. I looked around. And there he was. Lying on the floor of the back seat. Looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. And just to warn people ahead of time, this will be a spoiler-filled discussion, so beware. Uh, The plot, events leading up to the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre on Tasmania in an attempt to understand why and how the atrocity occurred. The director, Justin Krizel, the actors, Caleb Landry-Jones, Judy Davis, Anthony LaPaglia, and Essie Davis. Uh, Neil, why don't you try to explain to us why you foisted this film upon us? foisted it upon you um for several reasons uh, it got really good hype uh, when it debuted at Cannes last year um it is a film by justin Curzel, who um has a sort of um hodgepodge record but generally quite favorable in the kind of films that he's tackled um it's aussie so it's outside of america and <laughs> that's always a bonus um and it was a story that i wasn't aware of until i so i don't read synopsis generally or try and avoid trailers and um, I thought went into it cold Um, it's not out in the UK till July so I've managed to see it early Um, and yeah so those those are kind of like main reasons as to why I I suggested it to you Tim and then what did you think of Netrum and uh, I I think it's a very very solid piece of filmmaking I feel Curzel is back to his stomping ground. Um, you know, uh, he made he made snow the Snowtown massacre, so he's got he's got pedigree in this sort of stuff already. 
um, unfortunate pedigree, I would say. Um, but um, yeah, he's able to convey the, the griminess beneath beneath the surface. And there's an awful lot of films out there that kind of, especially from Australia, that really try and get behind the the the, the kind of uh, touristy image of of Australia. And, and there's quite a seedy underbelly of a, of a world you know we think about films like chopper for example um and i found this i found nitram quite close to a, another aussie film um animal kingdom um which was mm. uh, a few years ago i believe um two thousand well, eight years ago or something um which is just an ex- exceptional piece of work um but yeah i, I was really high on nitram and uh, Joe, uh, you this this uh, this was foisted upon you by Neil, so you can blame him. Like I said, uh, so how how did it work for you? So Tim, a couple of days ago, like a day or two ago, you messaged me and said, "Hey Joe, you want to be on this on our podcast? We're doing a movie called Nitrum." And I said, "Sure, it sounds great. I know nothing about it. It'll, it'll, it'll be fun, I'm sure. You know, I did John Wick uh, Chapter Three on your 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 podcast." back way back when and yeah yeah good good time i like i like talking movies with tim so this morning i get up get my cup of coffee settle down in front of the computer i put this movie on and just over over the course of the movie i could feel my my mood just kind of going down and down and at first i thought that well okay this is this is kind of your standard run-of-the-mill psychological tortured teen movie i didn't know it was based on a true story or anything like that it's kind of like okay, I can see the the, the beats they're going through here. Just the regular beats of there's this this guy. He's from he's this, this. You know, you know, this poor home life, uh, bad relationship with his parents. Meets someone, something bad happens to that person, and then about halfway through, I stopped the move the movie and I thought, okay, I, I need to look up a little bit more into this. So, so I looked it up, found out the whole history behind this. I was based on. Uh, and, and some actual events in Australia, and I could see where it was going, and just my mood just plummeted. I'm like, oh, oh no, this is this is one of the one of those feel bad movies. <laughs> and it finished. It's it's a very well made movie, but I feel like I'm still processing exactly what I think of it <laughs> as a whole. Uh, there's some things I liked about it, which I'm sure we'll get into. Some things I'm a little bit mixed on, a little bit negative on. Uh, I, I'm I'm happy I saw it. And I probably will never want to see it again. Well, Joe, let me ask you: How do you feel about films of this ilk, of this type, where they try to examine, you know, these individuals responsible for a reprehensible crime, you know, like this? It it depends on the movie. Um, this it, I I I I don't think anything is off the table content wise or or subject wise when it comes to filmmaking. I think you can make a movie about anything, anyone. Um, with subjects like this, where it, it, especially with mass shootings, I, I do think you have to have a great care and tact, uh, because because I'm always worried about giving the the people responsible more publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's something to be said about taking these kinds of stories and using them as cautionary tales and addressing real life issues, you know, whether it be in, the, in this one, they cover mental health and the way that's that dealt with and gun control and the way that's dealt with. Uh, so I, I, I think you have to take it on a movie by movie basis. I think you can, and you, we should make movies about these topics. So uh, it just depends on how it's handled. Right. And how do you think it's handled here? I mean, personally, I, I think Krizel very tries very hard not to humanize 
this this person. I think he 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 does his best just to simply lay out these events uh, leading up uh, to the shooting and um, how it, it just depicts you know how mentally unwell he was, how socially inept he was, uh, how you know not trying to lay blame on anybody uh else other than the, the this person the immediate family and sadly i guess how easy it was to to get firearms um so so how do you think he handles his material so so i i, I agree that i think the movie does a good job at not humanizing the individual individual in this one, it's, I mean, I mean the, the problem for me here is that I feel like we spend a lot of time with him and a lot of time getting to know him without really getting to know him. And that's, that's it's kind of a double-edged sword because it, you would need to get to know him and understand him more to make it compelling and worthwhile. But if you go that route, it potentially makes it more problematic. So I kind of felt like at the end, I didn't really feel like I knew any more about this guy, and I'm not quite sure why we spent so much time with him. The the, the topic that I, I did feel like the filmmaker did a good job of portraying was when it came to the actual gun control issue, which doesn't come in until probably about the last half of the movie. Right. Uh, I, I don't personally own a gun, and I've never wanted to own a gun. But after watching this movie, I really don't want to own a gun. And mm. I kind of felt like that's the the one of the things that they try to get across at the, in this movie. So on, in that front, I felt like it was successful. As far as the main character, Nitrom, in this movie, I again, I'm, I'm still kind of processing. I'm a little bit mixed on it. I'm not quite sure what I think of it in the end. Uh, Neil, how do you feel uh, about this? Um, the, what, the sensitivity behind it? Right. Uh, the, the depiction, the uh, the either humanization or lack thereof uh, sure. that Krizel tries to employ here. Yeah, so I largely agree with your kind of assessment of it, which is that um, he doesn't, Nitron doesn't appear, not human, I, I would say that he does not appear to fit societal norms. I, I, I think he's still very much a human in my eyes. It's just that his behavior is amoral, um, and, and just doesn't fit in with our, our views on society. So that, that's probably I, probably one thing I would I would say about it. Um, yes, the, the the gun crime issue is kind of really that's the most uh, prominent theme that obviously comes out of this film. I, f I feel because even the uh, the character Nitram is not actually named by their their birth name right. at all so you know throughout the whole film yeah. um yeah. so th th there is that element to it as well um i, I think it's got kind of handled in in such a way um that is not sympathetic because actually I th I, you get the sense that the blame for the what happened with nitram um is is shared uh, amongst his family and and the people that interacted with him in those sort of last few years um they uh well they're, they're almost shown up to be complicit in 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 enabling his behavior you know especially the father for example um even the mother to an extent from a very sly view and um also helen the uh the the lotto heiress um i feel they're all implicit because they let nitram behave in the way that he has without reprimand of sorts um and you know it's easier just to let him do his own thing um so i, I feel like it's it, it is sensitively handled um uh, you know this was this is not the case for um 
residents who live in Tasmania who um, obviously are near Port Arthur, you know, survivors, uh, the victims themselves and the families of them, um, that it was largely banned in, in Tasmania and it wasn't received very well. And the, the general consensus was that this should never have been made into a film. And they felt very uncomfortable about that. But, you know, as, as, as has been said already this evening, um, we should be making these films and we should continue to uh, highlight these films because as, as a way of averting them in the first place, you know, it's important to see the horrible side of human nature. I mean, we had two films about the uh, July 22 massacre at Utoya, you know, right. Utoya 22 and uh, 22 July, the Greengrass film. Mm-hmm. Um I would not. I would once again say that they're films that I wouldn't want to revisit. But I definitely uh, felt some sort of revulsion and 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 an, an experience. Well, there's uh, there's there. there's two ways to handle these types uh, of events in what you depict that that uh, Greengrass film you mentioned as you know not just 22 July but also United 93 uh, shows these these events mainly through the eyes of the victims uh and and you uh look at a film like this as well as Krizel's other film uh, Snowtown yeah. where they show them through the perpetrator's eyes so, so well, but we, we've been here before let's let's actually just go to Gus Van Sant's uh, yes. elephant yes you know, this this is this is the kind of film that this is quite similar to right and once again those boys are not humanized in Elephant. In fact, right. they're shown to be quite abnormal um, all the way through that film and, and um, not part of the fabric of, of, of a society that they could live in. Um, they're, they're not humanized. It's, um, I would say it's more explicit than perhaps it needs to be, mm. um, that film, because obviously you see the, 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 the horrificness about it. Um, but it is told from their perspective. And, you know, I think there's there's quite a few serial killer films that we've seen from the murderer's perspective. Um, Look and at, that, that uh, doesn't Hen- make it. Yeah, like Henry you know. Portrait of a Serial Killer, for example, came to mind. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Or, or what was the um, the um, one with Matt um, thingy from 90210 and he goes to meet the devil? Um, the house that Jack built. Oh, the house Jack built. Wow, yeah, that's an extreme example, of course, from an extreme <laughs> filmmaker. You know, that that's a filmmaker who is is his whole purpose of being is to provoke. Uh, so it, it's really an outlier there, I think. <laughs> God bless Lars von Trier. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the interesting thing that you said about perspective, though, Tim, because. Again, watching the first half, not knowing the the history behind the movie and and the the, the real events. I, my first thought was, oh, this this just feels like a a remake of Rob Zombie's Halloween, uh, you know, with the, the the long-haired guy and the broken family home, and I can see, like, oh, I can read the science is going to be going down this path of violence. And we see that perspective a lot in horror movies, and it's true that a lot of times when you have movies based on real-life tragedies and uh, these, these mass shootings – we often show them from the point of view of the victims because there is heroism there, there is relatability there. You can humanize these characters, so it feels more uncomfortable when you take the, the this this other side of the story mm-hmm. and really delve into it. And I think the only way you well, one of the only ways you can do it is by digging into the mental health uh, aspect and what kind of uh, aid, if if any, did they get from the outside? How are they failed by those around them? 
So it's, I don't know, it's, it's just a really interesting perspective to think about. I agree. Yeah. Um, Neil, let me ask you, what did you think about uh, Jones's uh, performance here? Um, fantastic. I forgot that he was American. Um, <laughs> that's how good it was. Uh, he, um, you, I think we, did we first see him in um, Baby Cronenberg's film Antiviral? Is that where we first saw him? Uh, possibly. He, he, your uh, memory would be better than mine. Okay. Well, I think that's where I first saw him. And I, I already knew he's kind of like a, once a year, well, you said it, an outlier in the in the acting world. You know, he's a very sort of particular character uh, whenever he turns up. You know, the cure for wellness is probably another good oh, yes. example. Well, of, uh, so he, that wasn't his first film, Antiviral. He was in X-Men First Class. He was in Friday Night Lights uh, series. He was in The Social Network for a little bit. And the last exorcism in 2010. So he he had some movies before. Uh, uh, okay, that one. but he's bec- he's definitely become this this type of actor, hasn't he? This this sort of um, ultra sort of actor, the sort of I, I a male equivalent of Mia Goth, perhaps. Sure, hey, uh, a good example. I, I like that poll. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on fire tonight. Um, but um, yeah, um, I, I yeah, I I thought I. Th- thought he was ex- exceptional because I did forget that his nationality and he's clearly put on a few pounds for this role to really sort of embody him. And I think it's quite difficult to act as if you're not already um, or you perhaps not had an experience of it as a technically Nitram is a neurodiverse person. And I think it's difficult to kind of convey the, the sort of um, the level on which he is on the, the, the autism spectrum. Cause it, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to, I think it'd be fair to say that Nitram is autistic. I, at least, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he has definite social ineptness. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that he does. He doesn't ever go overboard with his performance and his and his affectations. Um, I, I think that he plays it relatively straight. And also, you know, once again, going in line with the idea of are we going to humanize this this person? Uh, I don't think he he performs it in a uh, sympathizing way. Uh, uh, if there's any empathy that we're gonna give towards him it's it's towards the the lack of mental care the lack of a caring family and uh how willing the uh firearm salesman is able to you know give him uh those guns just because he sees a bag full of cash what do you think joe well, that, that was one of the frightening things, and one of the great things about his performance was the fact uh, how his character was able to assimilate into whatever public area he was, he was in. I mean, I'm thinking of when he's at the travel agency, and he's, he's trying to get, get these flights to, to Hollywood, and he just wants to travel. And, you know, something's off about him in that scene, but the woman just kind of passes it off as, oh, well, I want to make this sale, and I want to help him out, and, and, and all this or even the scene at the end when he walks into the uh, cafe and he goes up to the woman at the, at, at the front and orders the the, the, the uh, juice and the fruit pack. And he's there and he just seems so calm and, and, and but, but was having seen him for this, these past two hours, we know that, you know, deep bubbling down underneath, the more insidious uh, goings on what's going on with him. Uh, but you know, everyone else just kind of passes it off as, oh, he's just maybe you know, maybe this guy's off a little bit. But you know, we'll just, we'll just 
keep, keep going. And then the people who should be in the know, uh, his parents especially, are the ones who just kind of don't want to deal with it. Like they, they kind of are, but they're just letting it slide and saying, well, you know, it's annoying, but what can we do? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, I was really struck by some of the uh, shot composition here, the way this movie is, um, the cinematography in this movie, where uh, Curzel ends some scenes where the camera is in a position that almost looks like security cam footage, and and I think it's very much intentional the the times that he uses it in in terms of making us the fly on the wall. It, with these interactions and how some of these scenes uh, seem to linger on a little bit more than what I think we would be comfortable with. Uh, and I, I think it serves as a bit of a, of a foreshadowing technique, um, especially considering this movie ends the way it does. Uh, and with where there's this building dread as uh, in this last act, in this last scene, where you, I think, are expected, you're expecting to see some horrific events, but the way it cuts out, you know, I, I think it's a, just an interesting technique. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, I, I mean, we, I think we knew that was coming, um, and it's clearly a necessity of the story because I think if you show any of that, it, it, it's unnecessary. Right. Um, I, I don't think it would add to the story because the story is about Nitram and what he did next. And I, I just feel that the ending, uh, you know, the seemingly abrupt ending is is um, is softened by those those final title cards that come up about the gun control. So you know that that really ramps point the the point home that actually we're not interested in seeing a lot of people get massacred right. because we already know that Nitram is a, a a bad person and is capable of bad things. Um, you know, he, he killed his uh, friend, and um, he also then was lied about it afterwards and said he was, you know, he wasn't driving or whatever he, uh, excuse he came up with. Um, so he, he he's capable of being bad, um, and those uh, we know that. So there's no necessity to see the violence, but the the intertitles I think is just reinforces the fact that actually what we're talking about here primarily is the gun control laws um, within um, uh, Australia. Uh, Tasmania. And uh, Joe, what did you think about how this movie was shot? I mean, it looks really good. The, the I know I, I noticed that there's a lot of you know very shallow to the field. The camera was moving around a lot. It did. It, it felt very personal, very intimate. The I, I think the first time that I noticed something really showy was again at the the end there when there's this overhead drone shot just looking down at the location mm. of, of the cafe. It was the first time I first time I think I act, I actively noticed the camera work outside of the beginning of the movie. I thought, oh, they're they're actually doing something uh, different here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I I felt like the movie was done well as far as making it feel like a very insular, personal movie focused on the tram. Yeah, and I I think uh, speaking of the ending scene again, the sound design is is really interesting and in how it's very notable that you hear so many of the sounds of the, of the families surrounding him. And uh, just before these events unfold, you know, the, and, and I, very purposeful amplifying those sounds and just making uh, that's that scene more poignant, I think. Um, 
and I, I, I will say from a from a sound design perspective, that scene where he's leaning on the horn when his dad is outside the car yeah. drove me absolutely insane. insane. I felt like his dad in that moment just said, just stop. Yeah. What are you doing? Stop it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Neil, anything else to mention uh, before we wrap it up here? Um, yeah, um, there, there is. I think there's a bit of a sort of criticism like herself, uh, uh, Hollywood, because the, the Hollywood is used as a sort of device in the middle of the film to kind of, you know, they, they say, oh, we they, that's where they make all our favorite movies. And, you know, that's where they're going to L.A. is, is seen as the sort of glamour end of that. Mm. I'm just trying to remember why Nitram actually purchased a gun yeah. in the first place. Was he watching something on TV at one point and perhaps thought that would be a good idea? But he's he obsessed with firearms anyway, you know, with the firecrackers at the start and the fireworks and whatnot. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I also have to mention in Nitram that, that probably one of the best pieces of acting actually came from the gunsmith who felt very very natural i really really enjoyed that performance he was he was fantastic he was just so 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 brilliant um but and also i did like the the ensemble cast as well i haven't seen anthony lapaglia in many years and dude looks very different from lantana i'll tell you that much (laughs) and essie davis was barely recognizable um as this sort of uh, older woman character to, to nitram felt a little bit harold and Maud that relationship as well so i kind of like that yeah interesting yeah they never uh i guess key in or intimate that there's any sexual relationship between them uh and i don't know if that's even necessary to make a point of uh within the film but uh, I think uh, it's something that you would expect uh, <laughs> as you're watching. I was like, oh, this is probably going to lead to something, but it never does. It's it's relatively platonic. Um, and and I don't know, it's it just two, two people who are relatively similar in terms of personality, uh, even though obviously Nitram is more uh, volatile. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just uh, it's just really interesting how they stumble upon one another. Um, Joe, anything else? Any last comments on this movie? I, again, I, I think this is one I'm going to be gonna... thinking about for the next couple of days. Uh, I I have it right now on Letterbox at three stars out of five, and I could see it going wildly up or wildly down just based on my own reflection on the movie in the next couple of days. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's 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 a very it, it, it is a very respectful movie in the way it deals with the subject matter. Um, and it is a very well-made movie. Again, like, like, like you mentioned, the sound design is just fantastic. I, I'm glad that they didn't go overboard with the ending. It, it, I think it would have been too easy to go sensationalist with it. Yeah. I almost wonder if this wasn't based on a true event, I wonder if they would have gone a little farther with the ending and how that would have affected how we looked at the movie. Uh, but as it is, I'm glad that they showed respectful restraint there yeah it's interesting you mentioned if it wasn't based on true events it would clearly be a movie inspired i we're going to go back to elephant again a movie that's clearly inspired by columbine uh and and unfolds very similarly i think uh so i i don't see how you can make a movie like this without it being inspired by some sort of event and uh and then you know how does it play out? I think you're you're right. The it, it would it would depend on on uh, you know the intentions that we're trying to understand here. So, I uh, all right. Let's get into grades. Neil, what grade would you give this? Um, I'll give Nitram a B plus. 
Yeah, I'm right at a B. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid B. I, I think that, you know, it's it's not the most propulsive film. It, it does, uh, you know, leave you in moments of, uh, you know, odd quietness and, and uh, I don't know, perspective or whatever. Uh, so it, it's it's an interesting movie. Uh, very interesting. Uh, Joe, what grade did you give us? You know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and sit at a B minus right now. B minus borderline B. Um, again, that, that that could go up or down in the next few days. I, I, I would say if I rewatch this in a year, I could see myself giving it a wildly different rating, but I don't know that I ever do want to put this on again, so we'll we'll see. Uh, okay, that does it for this episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Donate via patreon.com slash firsttimewatchers or buy stuff at zazzle.com slash firsttimewatchers. This is where Wally would say to follow us on Twitter at 1ST Time Watchers. And this is where Hermano would say to email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. And this is where I say, please leave us a review for Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Uh, we'd love feedback. It's always appreciated. If you have any suggestions of movies for us to watch, please send a tweet or an email. Speaking of suggestions, let's recommend a movie. Uh, I will go first. Uh, so we were talking about movies that were inspired or actually uh, you know, depicting uh, events and I will mention a movie that uh, Denis Villeneuve Villeneuve I know Neil loves how I pronounce Denis Villeneuve's uh, name I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Uh, from 2009 Polytechnique a dramatization of the 1989 Montreal massacre during which several female engineering students were murdered by an unstable misogynist uh, this is a movie that I think does a fantastic job at at uh, focusing on the victims, particularly one person. Uh, as well, you know, it does uh, you know show the POV a little bit of uh, the perpetrator. Uh, but if if you are looking to round out your Denis Villeneuve uh, filmography, uh, I would highly recommend this one. This is actually what I think is his best film, uh, Polytechnic. Uh -huh. And it is, it's uh, an amazing and heartbreaking film. Uh, so, so. I, Neil, what movie would you recommend? Well, it was going to be Polytechnic until about two minutes ago. You're welcome. Um, so I have now pivoted, Tim. Um, and I am going to suggest a, an upcoming film. I'm not sure when it's uh, out in the States. Um, it is called All My Friends Hate Me. Um, it's a British film um, and it's been picked up by the British Film Institute, uh, basically about this guy, uh, he's about 30, and they're having their um, university reunion, college reunion, as you'd say over there. And um, uh, he um, goes to meet all these people he hasn't seen in years and years and years. They've hired a mansion for the weekend and he realizes that his friends have actually all become quite middle class um they're not particularly nice they sort of become adults and he's very much in the sort of college years of his life still it's a uh, a great example of sort of gaslighting as well this whole film feels so tense and it made me have absolutes if you have social anxiety don't watch this film uh but i think that's why it works so well because it made me really push myself to the edge so all my friends hate me which um should be out uh, in a few months time how about you joe i will go in the opposite direction of what we watched today instead of a a uh, uh, grounded respectful inside look at a very serious topic uh, and very non-exploitative 
I'm going to go with a fun, rip-roaring, over-the-top, exploitative movie with Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino's Grindhouse from 20, 2007. Uh, I rewatched this recently, the double feature of Planet Terror with Death Proof with all the fake trailers in between, and it's just, for me at least, it's a feel-good, good time, every single time that I watch it. Um, it's very long, but I think it's important that you sit down and watch both these movies together because for the complete package of the over-the-top science fiction action of Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror at the beginning, mellowed out with uh, the the 1970s kind of grungy car movie with uh, Death Proof at the second half by Tarantino. Uh, excellent. Uh, uh, Joe, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Always, always a pleasure. Where can people find you online? So you guys can find me on Twitter at Film Illiterates, and you can also find me on Letterboxd, where I log all my movies on uh, Film underscore Illiterates. And all of our video reviews, uh, we do older movies, newer movies, try to get more obscure movies, uh, some classics at youtube.com slash film illiterates. Uh, Neil, thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. As always, uh, where can people find you online? Um, so you can uh, follow at Film Seekers, which is my little film project. Um, or if you like to talk um, films from uh, old to new uh, and you like the film industry as a whole and um, you like reading weird articles and whatnot, you can follow me on Twitter and it's at Neil Ramjee. That's R-A-M-J-E-E. -E. Excellent. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be discussing the 1993 film Bad Boy Bubby. This has been the First Time Watchers Podcast. Because we like to watch. Happy to happy to hop in, and uh, thanks for thanks for ruining my day. <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome. It's the least um, I could do, the very least. Uh, FYI, um, my my wife is wrangling the kids around, so I might just be turning my mic off when I'm not talking, but I'll I'll still be listening in uh, when I'm not like on mic. So so you are taking Hermano's place, and I like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 500 episodes, eh? That's it. We're, we're done. So when, when when will that take you out to? Is that next year? That will be the middle of next year, yes. Gotcha. Have you, have you guys figured out what you're going to do for the last one yet, or are you still, oh, still we, sorting we, it out? We have it planned out. We already know. Oh, awesome. That's great. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll drop that info on uh, 475. Okay. 475 will be on... Oh, the end of season two, at the end of this year, the uh, uh, December 7th. Okay, gotcha. Yes. So exciting stuff. Exciting. Last episode will be July 26th of next year. Alrighty. And are you going to do do anything else after that, or just kind of focus on work mm -hmm. and other things? No, nope, that's it. That's it. No, no more podcasting. Mm -hmm. If people if people ask me uh, to guest on something, I might consider it, but 
All done. I'll 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 uh, I'll movie it out. <laughs> well, no, we're never movie it out. Never movie it out. <laughs> At least I'm never movie it out. My my co-hosts don't like to watch movies, obviously. Uh, I'm the, I'm or, the one or, that actually but good movies at least right right I'm the one that does the watching <laughs> yes yeah hang on Just getting myself into it <clears throat> okay uh, Neil this is where you could say this has been the first time watchers podcast yes. yeah oh I'm gonna do that. can I not do the because we like to watch that okay Joe this is where you say this has been the first time watchers podcast 